Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by those who listen and by Lee Toyota of Topsum, featuring the new all-electric Toyota BZ4X, available for test drives. LeeToyota.com. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Kevin Miller, Maine Public Statehouse Correspondent. This week is a special edition of The Pulse, as we recap the political news for the month of February. What you're about to hear is a lightly edited version of the live discussion with Maine Calling host Jennifer Rooks, Chief Political Correspondent Steve Missler, and myself. Steve, on Tuesday, Governor Bill signed a supplemental budget. How is the supplemental budget different from the state budget she outlined in her speech? So whenever you hear the words supplemental budget, it effectively means a change to the current budget. So the spending plan you're referring to, Jen, is effectively an adjustment to the current two-year spending plan that expires at the end of June. Most of that money is basically was from the state surplus, but there wasn't that much because the the heating relief checks that passed basically the beginning of January gobbled up the majority of the surplus, which is close to a half billion dollars. So the two-year budget the governor discussed in her address last week is her proposal for the next spending plan, and that is currently in the hands of the legislature, which can and probably will make some changes to it. All right. Well, this supplemental budget tackles two issues that are very much in the news right now, Um, the nursing home staffing shortage, and also pay for those lawyers who defend people who cannot afford to pay for an attorney themselves. Kevin, how far will this money that's been allocated now go to solve these problems? Yeah, well, the Mills administration and the legislature, they did set aside this additional money. It's, it's actually state and federal money for nursing homes. And that's because these facilities continue to struggle with the increased costs and the staffing shortages from the pandemic. You know, like a lot of hospitals, many of these facilities had to resort to staffing agencies and temporary workers, which cost a lot more. And a representative for the state's long-term care ombudsman told lawmakers that uh, six nursing homes around the state closed between 2021 and 2022, which that just puts an additional strain on an already overburdened system. The the money that they set aside is not going to solve all these problems. I think we actually heard on main calling earlier this week that hospitals are often still unable to discharge patients because they don't have anywhere to send them when they need rehabilitation or nursing care. So and this is a longstanding and, and long-term problem that the legislature is going to have to continue to, to address. Uh, the other issue that you mentioned, the Maine's indigent legal defense system, uh, yeah, they received money to increase pretty significantly the reimbursement rate for private attorneys who provide uh, defense to people who can't afford their own attorney. This is actually going to almost double it. It's going from about $80 an hour to $150 an hour. Up until a few months ago, Maine was the only state in the country that relied entirely on these private attorneys to represent defendants. We now have a handful of of state-employed public defenders, and Governor Mills has proposed uh, adding more. But this increase in the reimbursement rate up to $150 actually already appeared to draw in additional attorneys willing to do that work. All right, then. Let's talk about the $450 heating relief checks that so many people are looking forward to receiving. Steve, how many people have actually received theirs? And if you haven't, what should you do? Yeah, so as of last week, Jen, uh, roughly 60% of the checks had been mailed by the state. That's according to the state finance office, which 
expects to make more progress on getting those out the door. <clears throat> um, and I suspect that they have. The governor has said that all of the checks should be in people's hands by the end of March. So it would appear that the state is on track to meet that target. We'll see. Uh, you asked what people should do if they haven't received their check. Well, they can do two things. Really, they can continue to wait. But if they're curious about the status of their payment, the state has actually set up a website where they can check it. It's maine.gov slash governor slash mills slash energy relief. So you could check the status of the check there of your check there. Um, and I would expect, you know, that we'll hear more as the state makes more progress in getting them out the door. We just happened to ask about it last week and with the status report we received was 60% um, of the checks have been mailed. All right, Kevin, there's another potential referendum in the news, a right to repair. Those petition signatures were um, approved this week. Explain what this is, right to repair. And and I'm wondering, why hasn't the legislature just passed this in the past? It doesn't seem like sort of the big social issue that so many referendum questions are. Yeah, no. So, so right to repair is it's a national movement that its supporters say really is needed to allow consumers to fix or to hire someone to fix all the things that we buy, whether that's a, a cell phone or a washing machine or, or a car. The, the right to repair question that is likely going to voters this fall here in Maine only deals with automobiles in this case. And it says that a car manufacturer has to give all these independent car repair shops or, or car owners access to, to the really high-tech diagnostic systems and tools that, that are really needed to, to work on cars today. Uh, a lot of cars, you know, it used to be that you took it to a shop and they plugged it into the, to the car and, and they'd get a, a download of what's going on, the diagnostic codes. Well, nowadays, a lot of these, these, uh, this information is actually transmitted wirelessly to car manufacturers and to dealers. And the independent repair shops say that they should have access to that information. That way, car owners can decide where they want to take their car to get it fixed. They say this is really about leveling the playing field. But on the other side, of course, there's always another the other side. Uh, you have the car makers and the suppliers, and they say that really the independent shops already have access to these diagnostics and these tools. And instead, they say this is a, a money grab by the aftermarket parts manufacturers and the big retailers. And they say that basically they're trying to get access to car owners' data for marketing and sales. So I think that's a part, of, a big part of the reason why we haven't seen this move forward in the legislature before. Um, it is contentious, and um, on the on the surface, it sounds like something that you know returning rights to consumers, but but the industries have, have fought against it. Uh, lastly, the legislature will have a chance to approve this uh, before it goes to the voters. But typically, what they do is they send ballot initiatives right to voters. Like so many things more complicated than it appears on the surface. Steve, Senator King is the target of criticism this week from the right. Tell us about the Twitter files. All right. So the Twitter files is a project of Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk, who believes that the social media company uh, muzzled conservatives under its previous ownership regime. And to prove this point, he has handpicked journalists who share this view, including Matt Taibbi, a former darling of the left who is now championed by the far right. Last week, Taibbi released internal Twitter documents showing that King's 2018 campaign had provided a list of hundreds of what they described as suspicious social media accounts to Twitter's previous executives. That list includes bots, conspiracy theorists, troll accounts, and but it also included 
some accounts that supported his Republican candidate, that his Republican challenger that year, State Senator Eric Brakey. Now, Brakey and Republicans are now saying that this is evidence that King effectively created an enemies list, which is why you'll hear a lot of references to Richard Nixon if you are following the story, uh, and also that he used his position as a U.S. senator to persuade Twitter to take down these accounts. We don't know if that actually happened, but even if it didn't, the attempt has provided the Republicans grist for their larger claim that Twitter had had it out for conservatives. Now, I should point out that there's been other reporting, and not from Taibbi, suggesting that politicians in both parties have indeed lobbied Twitter to take down or at least review bot or troll accounts. And if that's accurate, then King, King's request uh, suggests that there's an emerging pattern of elected officials, including high-profile pro Republicans like the former president, lobbying social media companies to adjust content based on their interests. So that's sort of the the controversy in a nutshell. And a spokesman for King essentially has, a frame, has framed this list as another example of Taibbi publishing only documents that fit his and Musk's narrative. And they also claim that they've provided a list of far left accounts too, that they said was spreading misinformation. Uh, and Angus King has also said that that was the intent here was to police misinformation. We've asked for that second list. We haven't received it, but that's, that's the uh, controversy in a nutshell right there. All right. Thank you for explaining that. Kevin Miller, Governor Mills announced that she has joined the the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, a group of 19 Democratic governors. What do these governors think they can do together that they can't do individually? It seems that basically this is their attempt to show a united front on protecting abortion. And it's in response to the very vocal and you know sometimes uh, very coordinated campaigns that we've seen by anti-abortion governors and legislators in, in some states. There's a lot of talk in states uh, where abortion remains legal and is less restricted, like here in Maine, that they need to do something to shore up the legal protections for doctors who perform abortions, for women who come here from, from other states with more severe restrictions. I mean, that seems to be one area of potential coordination. Uh, some abortion, abortion opponents are focused on restricting the use of medication abortion, which has become the most common form of abortion in many states. And then there are concerns about um, access to contraception in some areas. So, you know, most of the governors who join this are from, from left-leaning states, but there are a few Democratic governors in there from states where Republicans actually control the legislature. Uh, I think uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin are two. So again, I think this is more of a chance for these 20 governors to kind of show a united front up against the, the very vocal things that we're seeing from Republican governors. Steve Maine's Wabanaki nations are trying a new tack in their effort to gain tribal sovereignty. Tell me about the upcoming State of the Tribes address. Yeah, so we learned this week, Jen, that the Wabanaki leaders will be given an opportunity to address a joint session of the legislature on March 16th. That will mark the first time in nearly 20 years that the tribes have given such an address to a joint convention of the legislature. But as you noted, Jen, this is one. This one will come at a time when I think there's much greater awareness about the plight of the Wabanaki and more specifically how they're treated differently than the hundreds of other Native American tribes in the United States. We don't ex know exactly what they'll discuss, but I think it's probably safe to say that they'll address what they view as constraints on their economic self-determination as a way of appealing to lawmakers that changes are needed. Now, they've they've been doing that for the last few years, a concerted effort to do it the last few years. But I think 
this time they'll get a, a chance to talk to the entire legislature all at once. And House Speaker uh, Rachel Talbot Ross, who has been a close ally of the Wabanaki, had said recently that she wanted the tribes to give this address, and it looks like they'll finally get their chance to do that. Kevin, what is the latest on Clinton Collimore, that state rep who was accused of forging signatures on clean election petitions? Yeah, we, well, we just heard this morning, actually, that Mr. Collimore has submitted his letter of resignation to the House Speaker. He had said that he was going to do that last week after he uh, pled not guilty in a West Cassett courtroom to those charges that he, he forged signatures uh, voters in order to qualify for about $14,000 in campaign, uh, public campaign financing. But the Speaker's office hadn't received that resignation um, until yesterday, apparently. So that seat is officially vacant, and there will now be a special election to fill it. You know, I think what's, what's interesting, uh, this is a fairly rural district in one of those areas along the coast that can be hard to predict. Uh, the last representative, um, there was an independent who was pretty progressive on many issues, um, such as criminal justice reform. But I wouldn't say the Waldoboro or friendship areas are liberal bastions like we see on other parts of the mid coast. So Republicans are already uh, pledging to put up a really strong effort to recapture that seat. But in the end, it's not going to affect the balance of power because Democrats have a, have a sizable majority in the House. And finally, Steve, I understand it has been a quiet week in the legislature because of school vacation week. What do you expect next week? Well, I would expect a lot more hearings on the bills that have been printed. And I think we're close to 900 drafted bills so far, Jen. That's out of more than 2,000 that uh, that have been put in for requests. Um, of course, public hearings on the governor's budget will continue as well. Lots of but there's still lots of big issues still hanging fire that may not come up next week, but should in the months ahead, including abortion, paid family leave, and you name it. There's a lot of that's usually the way it works in the legislature. The the, the big controversial or even contentious issues usually kind of they hang out until the end, and the legislature takes care of them before they uh, adjourn for the session or for the yeah, for the session in um, in June. And so I would expect a lot of that stuff we'll see then. But for now, that's the sort of churning of of all the other uh, bills that um, maybe don't don't get the same sort of level of attention, but are also very important. And that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. A reminder that the Pulse podcast typically posts on Friday afternoons with an excerpt broadcast Friday evenings on All Things Considered. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Sign up at mainepublic.org slash pulse. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.